Hello, and welcome to a show of their own, Sports and Life with Morgan and Laura. I'm Morgan. And I'm Laura. And um, obviously last week we had a little bit of fun, but the week prior to that, we kind of explored a, a sport near and dear to Morgan's heart, baseball. <laughs> we got a little nerdy going all into the Houston Astros and everything about their scandal. And so we decided let's do the other way, which is obviously my favorite sport is hockey. And so we're going to go a little bit of a nerd moment for hockey. And I have way too much knowledge about the NHL salary cap, so I thought it would be fun to kind of give a little bit of a deep dive. And it's going to be kind of cool because uh, Morgan was telling me that she has been kind of curious about it. So I'm hoping, like, you can ask questions or, like, give your commentary on, like, that's stupid because some of the things really are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I've even, like, texted you, like, when things come up, I'm like, so explain this to me because MLB doesn't have a salary cap. So anything that has anything to do with that, I'm like, I don't know what this means. Yeah. And the NHL is fairly unique. So that was kind of my first thing is just to like explain it from a high level. Obviously, I think every sports cap situation is fairly unique. The NHL has a hard cap, but unlike the NBA or stuff like that, there's no luxury tax. There's no anything. It's just, this is the top level that you can spend there are is something we call equalization payments but that has really nothing to do with the cap it's just basically the rich teams uh pay a little bit of money so that the poor teams can stay (laughs) solvent um but it's not tied to the cap like the luxury taxes um so the salary cap for this year was 81 million 500,000 so that's like the upper limit you can't spend more than that there is actually a cap floor which can be relevant for certain teams Ottawa Senators um and it's 60.2 million dollars but we're going to go through later how you can kind of get around both the floor and the cap because there are ways um So how you figure out your cap is not how much money I'm paying my players this year. It's actually the average annual value of a contract. So I thought of a really simple example, which is to say in an alternate universe, I'm an NHL player and I make (laughs) $1 million in the first year of a contract, $2 million in the second year of a contract, and $3 million in the last year of the contract. So it's a three-year contract. And it's $6 million total. So even though if we're saying this year is the first year, even though I'm making a million dollars, I would count $2 million against the cap because it's the average annual value, not what I'm making. So if you go in and look at a player, what they're making this year, there's a good chance they're not making what they count against the cap because it's not just strictly what you're making. So that's that's like a really high level overview of how that works but there's also it's not just like hey my salary is a million dollars um there can be signing bonuses which is something a lot of rich teams use to kind of um, attract players players like signing bonuses first of all because you get any you typically signing bonuses are paid on july 1st of the year before the season and so you're getting your money up front the other thing you'll see a lot of signing bonuses scheduled for years in which there might be a lockout so players look at the the, when um the cba is up and will get negotiate signing bonuses for the year there could be lockout reason being signing bonus gets paid lockout usually doesn't happen until the start of the season so they've already got their money whereas if it's a salary they're hanging on and they don't get that payment 
So it's, it saves them, it keeps money in the player's pocket. But salary, but signing bonuses count against the cap the same. So it's all part of that value of the contract. Um, so that's just like a, a different way rich teams kind of flex their muscles. Um, any one individual player can't earn more than 20% of the current cap when they sign a deal. But what that means is that players' contracts get more valuable over time. And so I have an example from my favorite team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. So Sidney Crosby signed a contract with a value of $8.7 million a year. Like I said, he's 87. <laughs> he was born on August 7th of 1987. He loves that number, that numbers and everything. But when he signed that number, it wasn't like a huge deal or anything because it was, the cap was $70.2 million. And so he was 14.5% of the cap. So obviously less than 20%, but still like a really good percentage. But right now in today's cap, he's 10.7% against the cap. Put another way, if he made his same percentage in today's terms, he would make $11.817 million. But he's only making 8.7. So players' contracts get more valuable over time. So like someone like Sagan and Ben's, assuming the cap goes up, their contract right now is going to seem a lot more expensive than if the cap went up a few years from now. They would be cheaper because the percentage oh. they're taking up is less. That so when did he sign, when did Crosby sign that contract? He signed it in 2012. He was actually one of the last before the last lockout. He's one of the only ones remaining of this of the, before the last lockout. So his contract is structured a little bit differently. Yeah. And I can kind of get into that a little later. I was just well. curious to see how it changed, like in how many years, because it, 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 it kind of fluctuated pretty quickly, I feel like. Yeah, and we're obviously going to see a change in that soon. But yeah. it has like it has gone up and there's ways it can go up, not just because like I say here, it's 50% of league revenue of hockey related revenue is goes to the players. Mm -hmm. so the cap is like an estimate of what 50% would be. But there's more to it than that because the players have an option of like escalating the contract by a couple million dollars because then they're the ones who would have to forfeit the money. It's, it's, it's very complicated in that regard, but <laughs> it's supposed to generally be 50% of the revenue. So when it goes to $81.5 million, what that tells you is the NHL is making more money. Now, you can't like straight take it across and like, okay, multiply that by two. So $160 million. That's how much the NHL made in revenue. Not quite because it's hockey related revenue. And so the league tries to bury stuff as not hockey related <laughs> revenue. And there's all of this, of course, it's, it's all, all crazy. So the first part I thought I'd talk about is all the different kinds of contracts because it's not just like hey I just pay players and good players get money that's yeah. not true in any sport any <laughs> like, like I remember seeing what Pete Alonzo made last year in baseball and it's like under a million dollars like mm -hmm. he doubled his salary by winning the home run derby yeah so that's very similar to the NHL like um players under 25 signing their first contract have to have an entry-level contract and there's a set number of years based on how old they are so it's either three two or one 
the younger players have to sign longer entry levels. And it, the entry level contract is capped at $925,000, but there are performance bonuses. And I, I don't know this part very well, but it's like Schedule A, Schedule B bonuses. And it's based on different categories in the CBA. And that's all maxed out too. But basically, they can like triple their salary or something insane like that based on performance bonuses. And how performance bonuses work is say you're an entry level player and you make a million dollars in bonuses after your $925,000. If your team has the cap room to absorb that million dollars this year, then it would count against this year's cap. If they don't have that cap room, if it would push them over the cap, then they have to take it in next year's cap and spend a million dollars less than they would. Okay. So that million dollars still counts against the cap, but you can kind of work it based on because you don't know how much performance bonuses because some players could just be never really like be on their entry level deal and never really do anything and not get any performance bonuses. Yeah. I sometimes I forget because like we can see each other, but like yeah. everything else is audio. So I'm just like over here nodding along. <laughs> I'm like I'm taking in, in the information in, but I forget like when this goes out, it's not a visual medium. <laughs> yeah, it is like, I can just talk about this for forever. <laughs> oh, so um, so uh, after that entry-level contract has expired, a player is a restricted free agent. Now, that seems simple enough, but it's not because there's different kinds of restricted free agent. There are things called offer sheets arbitration and so a player can be eligible for one of or both of those if a player is offer sheet eligible what that means is another team could <laughs> give them a contract and say hey we'll give you this for your next contract if the player signs with that team um then they can um the the team they're currently on can elect to match it or if they don't match it, then the player goes to the new team, but the old team gets draft picks in accordance with like levels. So right now it's like 10 point something million dollars and above is the highest offer sheet compensation. And it is four first round picks. That's why you never see offer sheets signed <laughs> to that level. Also NHL, play, NHL GMs are kind of sissies. So like <laughs> you'll never know. Yeah, because there was recent somewhat yeah. recently there was an offer sheet because I got really excited when you started talking about this because I was like I remember this was probably like one of the first like things with yeah. money for NHL that I texted you about I was like what the heck is an offer sheet and what does this mean so it was MLB it, doesn't have that at all so I'm like I what what even is this and see it was actually a player kind of trying to leverage to get an, a quicker negotiation so it was Sebastian Ajo who was a restricted free agent from Carolina mm -hmm. They were like going back and forth, and Carolina was lowballing them because Carolina's kind of in like they're making more money now because they're more popular, but it's not great hockey market and all of that. Montreal was the one who signed them, and they're in a great market, make a ton of money, one of the richest teams in the league. So, what they did is they signed him to a little less than what I would say his market value is, it was like eight point something million dollars, but what that did they they paid him a lot of it up front in signing bonuses and it was a little front loaded and so they were hoping like the Carolina Hurricanes wouldn't want to front load the money that much 
And so they wouldn't match because the draft picks weren't great. I think it was like a first and a second or something like that, which for Sebastian Ajo is not, that's not market value for a trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the player's perspective, Ajo was like, hey, I signed this. This is about like, it's a little less than what I maybe would have wanted, but it's right in the realm of what I would have wanted. And then that way we don't have a whole summer of going back and forth over every little bit. And so the Carolina Hurricanes had a week, they matched, and then his contract dispute is over. And the Hurricanes actually ended up being okay with it, even though, like, they were trying to get it for less money. It's like, hey, don't have to worry about it. Everyone else is having all of these nasty negotiations. We're done. And so they kind of used the Canadians just to, like, get it all done. So, the, it, and that's what a lot of people were disappointed is it wasn't a great offer sheet. Mm-hmm. There's one that I know people wish had gotten offer sheeted, and that's um, Kevin LeBanc of the Saint San Jose Sharks. He was a restricted free agent, and he was pretty good. He was like a solid middle six player, and he signed with the Sharks for one year and $1 million. And so you could have offer sheeted him for like, like $3 million or something, and you wouldn't have had to give like a second and a third or like a second, which is way cheap for him and San Jose it seemed like couldn't have matched it so I think a lot of GMs might be kicking themselves about not making that yeah. offer sheet. Um, so that's offer sheets at like a very high level I the one really cool story I wanted to tell you about was Ryan O'Reilly so Ryan O'Reilly has been around the league a lot he is now with Morgan's favorite team the St. Louis mm. Blues <laughs> Um, but he was with the Avalanche and he was a restricted free agent. And this was coming off the 2013 lockout, I believe, where a lot of players played in Russia, including Ryan O'Reilly. And so he, the Flames signed him to an offer sheet, but there was a caveat. The Avalanche matched, so it wasn't any fun, but had the Avalanche not matched, they would have gotten picks from the Flames and pretty decent picks because he was a good player. And because he played internationally, there was some rule that because of the international thing, he had to clear what are like international waivers. So the, the Flames would have had to put him on waivers where any team who had the cap space could claim him. Oh my and gosh. the Flames wouldn't have gotten anything for that claim. So they basically would have just given the avalanche picks and this other team would have gotten O'Reilly without having oh my gosh and they claim that they knew that but that they had figured no one would claim him because they didn't have the money blah 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 they did not know that <laughs> this is what you find out about as you get into the cap because of all the little details is yeah. that most teams a couple teams the Leafs are a prime example have really good cap gurus on their on their front office but a lot of teams don't know all the ins and outs so the Leafs because they have a ton of money they hired Brandon Pridham who's like their cap genius he was part of the like committee that wrote the current cap oh wow so if you want to find someone who knows the way around the cap yeah hire the person (laughs) who helped write it isn't that genius yeah so that's where the, that's why the Leafs always have these weird things they're doing. Um, but I guess I should also go on to arbitration. Arbitration, I think, is very common amongst the different leagues. And it's just basically like they can't agree. And there's in the NHL, in order to be like arbitration eligible or like 
to build to came to me that step a team has to extend a qualifying offer and there's percentages and it's based on experience and if they don't send a qualifying offer then the person's just an unrestricted free agent and can sign anywhere if they do a qualifying offer then the player can either just take the qualifying offer which a lot of times doesn't happen or they can keep going on and how it works is the team and the player file for arbitration then there's a hearing and then they announce the whatever the decision is and it's usually like an amount for one or two years is the contract length but nearly all of the time they'll file for arbitration and then agree before the hearing happens or the hearing will happen and then they'll agree before the decision is announced so usually it's just trying to keep the process going the negotiation process but it's not a ton of contracts that actually get decided by arbitration yeah that's the one thing so far that i'm like oh, that's exactly like mlb and i understand it so mlb has that too <laughs> yeah they do that i think you have to play i want to say either I think it's three seasons or a f certain amount of games before you're arbitration eligible. Don't quote me on that because I get a lot of their contracts wrong. But yeah, it's, it's similar things. You almost always see people go into arbitration, but it, like NHL, it never really goes to a hearing. I think, I think last offseason, I don't remember who it was, was the first time I actually saw it go to a hearing and a decision. I think I, I don't know why I want to say it was the Cubs, but it what I don't think it was someone with the Cubs. But it I was surprised that it actually went to a hearing because usually it's they they figure it out before then. Yeah, and that's the the only one that's coming to my head was Nate Schmidt with Vegas that happened mm -hmm. early in Vegas's life as an NHL team. But so the last one is kind of interesting. Um, basically, if you want arbitration or offer sheet eligible, then the team kind of has you because your options are don't play in the NHL or sign with the team. And so you have to sign a contract the team is willing to pay. And so that's how you got uh, a couple years ago, William Nylander held out for the Leafs. That happened to Johnny Goodrow from the Calgary Flames. A lot of players that, because they just can't play, but it does, if you're a really good player, there, you have the one advantage you have is I think it's December first at like six p.m. If you aren't signed to your team by that time, then you aren't eligible to play in the playoffs. So that's why you oh. find Nylander signed on the very last day, but it like they agreed to it right then. But it was actually kind of it didn't work out that well because he didn't have a good season. Like it's mm -hmm. hard to start mid season, but it worked out really well for the Leafs because one of the things they do to try to discourage these holdouts is the cap hit is prorated to be super high the first year if you hold out and then lower in the subsequent years. So like Nylander's cap hit his first year was like 10 something million dollars. And then now it's like 6.9 something million dollars. But that worked out great for the Leafs because they saved money in all of these years when they're cap crunched. But the year, his first year of the contract, they weren't cap crunched. So they just got to absorb more of his cap when they had the room. So that ended up being really good for them. But a lot of people, I remember our, our, our favorite Steve Dangle talking about this. It kind of was puzzling because the, the contract that he signed to seemed very like 
good fair market value for him. Mm -hmm. So you, you wonder, like, you could have seen it holding out a little bit, but you wonder, like, did the team not come to the table? Did the player not come to the table? Like, how could this number, it's not something crazy in either direction. How could no one agree to that? Yeah. And so that's where I think you kind of saw a little bit of an overcorrection from the Leafs because then it's like they didn't want the same thing to happen with Mitch Marner, who was in the same situation. So they paid him $10.893 million, which was over market value, like a pretty decent amount, at least like a good million dollars over market value. Wow. And so they didn't want to hold out. And Marner was like, his agent is kind of known to be one who will hold out. And so it kind of almost seems like they overcorrected a little bit because now they're really tied against the cap. So. Does, kinda, yeah, go ahead. So with, because you mentioned agents, it made me think of, is there like a, one agent in hockey that has like a lot of, because like there's a well-known agent in MLB, Scott Boris, who has like basically any player you can name and mm-hmm. you don't follow baseball that closely he's probably their agent and like he's really known for like having all those players but also like negotiating like good contracts for the players is there like does NHL have like a well-known agent so there are definitely some well-known agents there's not like one guy that everyone has but like Russians all of the really good Russians not all most of the really good Russians are with Dan Milstein okay and he will like get people so a lot of your KHL free agents who sign in the NHL our Dan Milstein clients. Um, so yeah, there's just a ton of, he has just a ton of Russian clients because he speaks yeah. Russian. I think he lives over there. So that is like a big one. Um, Darren Ferris is Mitch Warner's agent and he it was Taylor Hall's agent and a couple other people. And he has like a well-known playbook of like threatening to play <laughs> Overse- have the player play overseas while the holdout happened. So, like, I think Mitch Marner was going to play in, like, Zurich, which was where maybe uh, – I forget who played over there. And so, like, they have all this – like, there's this very definitive playbook that everyone knows from Darren Ferris. And so it's there, – there's there's definitely some well-known yeah. agents. Um, it's not just, like, one, though. There's a, there's a like, group. Yeah. I was just curious because I'm, like, there's – I know – it's it's weird for me to be able to name an agent in MLB, yeah. so I'm just curious to see like what overlaps the same as other other mm-hmm. sports. Yeah, and it, it is kind of interesting because like who agents go to like the Leafs have gotten a, a couple Dan Milstein clients now, and so mm-hmm. you're like who has the, like the really good relationships and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Um. There's all so I was, then the final thing is obviously the most freeing kind of uh, free agent to be unrestricted free agent. Um, basically, if they're old enough or if the team doesn't tender them a, a qualifying offer, they're unrestricted. Now, if I signed with the team that I'm currently on, I can have a maximum length of eight years. If I sign with a new team, it's seven years. So that was with the whole John Tavares saga when he was his contract was up with the Islanders when people pretty much knew that he wasn't gonna sign with the Islanders was like on midnight from June 30th into July 1 because July 1 is free agency so if they had signed him before midnight 
he would have been eligible for eight years with the Islanders. But if the Islanders signed him on July 1st, he would only be eligible for seven years. So it's like if he's going to sign with the Islanders, he's signing on June 30th. Because why wouldn't you want the extra year? So, so that like the longest contract any player could have is eight years? Currently. No. Okay. Sidney Crosby's, I think, is like 12 years because it was signed before the last um, lockout. And teams would offer these insane contracts. Like two of them, if, if you look at Minnesota, they're kind of in a bit of a pickle because they have Zach Parise and Ryan Suter signed for forever. Yeah. And because they signed it right before the lockout. So it's um, anything post-2013 lockout has to be okay. eight or seven years. Have they always had like a, a maximum number of years, like depending? I, I don't know. I don't even know if pre-lockout there was that because okay. like Ilya Kovalchuk, who now plays for the Capitals, for the longest time, New Jersey held his rights because they had him signed for forever. And then he just okay. went over. And so there's a lot of, like, these insanely long contracts you'll find out about. Because, like, eight years is a long time. But then I'm, like, in my mind, I'm, like, well, Bryce Harper just signed a 13-year contract. So it's, like, it, it's weird to see that NHL has a max number of years. But it also makes sense because, I mean, they're different sports entirely. And NHL is a little rougher on the body. Yeah. So it makes sense that you wouldn't sign a 13-year contract. but just the idea of like you can only go eight years just I guess my baseball brain is like wow why wouldn't you want to sign like like Mario Heiskanen for like 15 years yeah and see it's kind of a little bit of a catch-22 so mm -hmm. um what players want to sign because obviously their prime years are like mid to late 20s and then mm -hmm. when they hit 30 it's when people generally start to expect a drop off at some point and so some teams, like, I think you saw this with Nashville, signing Roman Yossi to mm -hmm. a con – like, he just resigned this year. But before that, he was making, like, $4 million is what he made this year. And they signed him a little long and maybe a slightly overvalued at the time for what he'd done. But now it's just, like, a steal. And, like, Colorado yeah. Avalanche with Nate McKinnon, he hadn't really earned his $6.something million per year when he signed it. But now he's, like, one of the top three players in the league – making like six million dollars when everyone else is making eight ten twelve million dollars so it's kind of like term and um cap hit and all of that they kind of try to find the sweet spot of giving yeah. something to the players but then something to the team and there's all these gives and takes and stuff. yeah it makes sense um so yeah that's what unrestricted free agency is so I thought it would also be interesting because the cap is coming into play a ton with all of the COVID-19 stuff. So um, the 50-50 split that I talked about where half the league revenues go to the players and the other half to the owners, to ensure that split, we have something that NHL players hate called escrow. And so basically some of their salary is held back in escrow. And then at the end of the season, they calculate the revenues for that season. And whatever is 50%, they give that amount back to the players from their escrow. But it's never the total amount that they withheld. So even though, like, 
I don't know what he's making this year, but say Tyler Sagan was making $9 million and this year's salary is $9 million. He's not, even pre-tax, he's not getting $9 million because some of it is held back in escrow and then just never refunded. Oh, because that kind of sucks. It, it really does suck. But that's why I think it's important, like, people know, like, just because you yeah. see this number, that's not what they're making. And it's not even just taxes that, that calculate into that. Um, but then the cap hit for the next season, like, they do a projection based on this season, and it's, like, 50%. And then, obviously, the players can escalate it if they want. But COVID-19 is just throwing this whole system into a loop because technically – if they set it to be 50% of this year's revenues for next year, the cap would go down. They cannot do that because all of these teams sign things at least expecting the cap to maintain, most likely anticipating it going up. And so teams would have to like buy out players and like they'd have to have compliance buyouts. And if that means I have to explain that to you, buyouts, <laughs> if I buy out a player, they still count against my cap, but it's at a, a, diff, a lower rate. A compliance buyout, I still pay the player whatever the buyout mandated, but they don't count against my cap. Okay. So they would have to give teams that in order to make them cap compliant. And so all of that. So what they're tentatively thinking is keeping the cap at the same. I can't imagine they'd change that. But then, in, like, instead of making players take a huge hit in escrow in one year, like, they'd have to take an insane hit to equal it all out they're going to split out over years so the players are going to have to take a little bit more of escrow for a longer period of time rather than just a ton of escrow next year got it just because also escrow doesn't just impact like your 10 million dollar players it obviously impacts your $1 million players. And so you don't want to completely destroy people who at that level who have shorter careers. Right. Now, one nice thing. So if you send players to the minors, escrow caps, they're not part of the escrow system, even if they're still earning their NHL salary. So I think a great example is Carl Alsner of Montreal Canadiens. And if you're asking who exactly, he used to be a pretty good player, but he's not NHL anymore like mm -hmm. so he makes like four million dollars or something but he's been in the minors for the past like season and a half so he's making four million dollars for something million dollars with no escrow which is pretty awesome for him yeah now my favorite part how to cheat the system because there are so many ways so we already talked about pre-lockout contracts so they could have really long contracts and the strategy that pretty much everyone used was backdiving contracts. So if you look at Sidney Crosby's for a long time in his contract, he made like 10, 11 million dollars. And then pretty soon his contract dives to like three million dollars or less than that. Or like I think his last year is like one million dollars. I'm actually gonna look it up because it's they're hilarious, these contracts. Mm -hmm. Um and the the thing that that does is it brings the average annual value down. And so it was just kind of a handshake agreement between the teams that between the player that when it dove, the player would just retire having made pretty much all of his money. And he, the team got the cheaper cap hit while still playing the paying the player more than that cap hit. So Sidney Crosby, this is going to take me a while 
to explain because it's a 12-year contract. But in his first year, it's so keep in mind, his cap hit is 8.7 million. First year, 12 million. Second year, 12 million. Third year, 12 million. Fourth year, 10.9. Fifth year, 10.9. Sixth year, 10.10. This year, 9 million. Next year, 9.6. 9 million. And then the last three years, which is 2022 season to the 2024-2025 season, 3 million, 3 million, 3 million. You see how that works? Yeah. So, and there's a lot, and this isn't even as bad. I've seen um, Marion Hosa, who plays for um, the, um, he's currently on contract with the Arizona Coyotes, but he was a legendary back Blackhawks. He had 7.9 for the first four, no, first three, four, five, six, for six years of his 12-year contract. Then in 2016-17, he made $4 million. And then in the last four years of the contract, it was $1 million. Well, how this all works, a little wrench thrown into the situation. They can't just retire now. Because coming out of the lockout, they outlawed these backsliding contracts. They're like, that's the way to cheat the cap. We don't want this to happen. But they didn't just outlaw it going forward. They grandfathered in the existing contract, but with the note that if a player retired before the end of the contract, what would happen is the team would have to pay what's called a cap recapture penalty, where basically the cap savings that you accrued by these cheaper years count against your cap now. And they're insane amounts, potentially, depending on the player. And so that actually happened. It's the first time I ever remember it happening. Roberto Luongo just straight up retired last offseason, and he had one of those contracts. And Vancouver was the one who signed it, so they had to pay the bulk of the recapture penalty, but he got traded to Florida, who had to pay a little bit of it. There's a way okay. that they split it all out. Uh -huh. They're basically making up the cap they saved with Luongo with that. Well, Teams don't really want to play, especially rich teams that go to the cap, don't really want to pay cap recapture. So there is a, a, a lovely place we like to call Roby Daw Island, who is named after uh, <laughs> Toronto Maple Leafs player Stefan Roby Daw, I think who is the most famous one to do this, where basically a player has a career-ending injury such that they can be placed on long-term injury reserve, not have the cap recapture, but actually the player still makes that money, even though it's not a ton of money to them, but the team gets, doesn't have the cap issues. And so it's called Roby Daw Island or my also one long-term injury reserve, LTIR. If you hear that, that's what that means. LTI retirement. <laughs> and so that happened with Marion Hosa. And you'll see conveniently right the year that he made a million dollars, he had and apparently he really does have like some kind of allergy to his equipment and he kept having to like increase the antibiotics that he took and they were getting too strong and all of that. The, the fact of the matter is when players are in their mid to late thirties, you can find a career ending injury if you really want to. Yeah. And so pretty much everyone is going to like, everyone thinks Sidney Crosby when he decides he's done, this contract might not be over, but he'll just concussions. Yeah. Had concussions. So you'll see a lot of stuff like that. So that's the way they escape that that um that little hurdle. So next cheating the system. 
chief teams. Most notably, currently that's really the Ottawa Senators. It used to be the Arizona Coyotes were really famous for this and they still have Marion Hosos books. Um, there's kind of two big things they can do to avoid paying less actual cap cash. So one thing they can do is acquire players from that great place, Roby Daw Islands, from teams. Um, and a lot of those contracts will be insured. So the insurance will pay something like 80% and the team only has to cover 20%. And um, I will explain later on, but LTIR players can count both for and against the cap and, it, and I'll explain how that all works. It's a little confusing. So this, even though they're on long-term injury reserve, it helps the team get to the cap floor, but they're pay paying only 20% of the contract. So they save money that way. Another really famous thing that teams do is, so there's those July 1st signing bonuses. So I think Toronto was a good example of this last year. I just remember Toronto a lot because I listened to this yeah. podcast. <laughs> and they do a lot of this stuff because they have that guy employed. So they had Nikita Zaitsev, who was way overpaid, and they wanted to dump him to get some cap relief but he was due a signing bonus. And same with Patrick Marlowe, actually. I think Patrick Marlowe, too, was due a signing bonus. And so what they do is they pay the signing bonus. And then after they pay the signing bonus, they trade him to another team. So the team still has the cap hit, but they save millions and millions of dollars in real cash. Mm -hmm. So you'll find a lot of the players on the Ottawa Senators had signing bonuses played out by other teams, are on long-term injury reserve, have insured contracts. So what they actually spend in cash is far less. And even still, they're just trying to hit that floor. So it's like a way to kind of get around <laughs> and save money. Yeah. And to explain how cap floor counts both for and against the cap, I'm going to explain how rich teams use this. Long-term injury reserve doesn't mean that that player doesn't count towards the cap. It means that the cap, my cap hit is higher. So in this year, let's say I was on some team, I'm making $5 million and I'm on long-term injury reserve for the whole season. I'm out the whole season. What that means is the team can spend $86.5 million, not that mine doesn't count towards the 81.5, it still does, but they can just spend more. And so you okay. see how that benefits the floor teams. Because if I was on a team that was trying to get to the floor, my 5 million still helps them get to that 60.2 million. The cap floor doesn't go up for that team. But if I'm on a richer team, then they can spend higher. Okay. And there's like ways around this that I don't fully understand why this is a benefit, but the Leafs have acquired long-term injury reserve career ending contracts because it helps them spend more. And there's all of these like machinations. And so you'll see a lot of paper transactions, specifically Vegas and the Leafs do this a lot this year, but any team that's close to the cap, you'll see this. Well, they'll call a player up for a bit, like a day never play them, send them down. And it's just these paper transactions up and down and up and down. Yeah. And it all has to do with maximizing cap flexibility. So. MLB kind of does that not in like a money way, but like for minor leaguers, they have to play a certain amount of games in the major league before like they start to become arbitration eligible or whatever. So like sometimes they manipulate 
their playtime in the minors to the majors on how to decide on what to pay. Like uh, Chris Bryant just had that yeah. whole thing with like they they brought they left him in the minors as long as possible because I think it's like five years in the majors before you end up getting more than league minimum or something like that. But they they manipulate game time so they can stave off paying them more. Yeah, I think, like, they, so they basically got an extra year of Chris Bryant. And there was a whole yeah. grievance about it. Yeah. But he lost that. Yeah. So got an extra year. But there's still people saying he's probably going to get traded. Yeah. I, I feel like if if we'd be playing baseball right now, I feel like he'd be traded already. Which is crazy because I yeah. think so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of traded, <laughs> the, the next thing on my list was about traded and retained salaries because this is also a thing. So, obviously, to help with cap hit, but then also for just cash considerations, if you trade a player, you can retain part of their salary as part of the trade. Um, There are rules about that. So, you can only retain up to 50% of their salary, and you can only have three retained salaries on your books at any given time. So, if I am retaining on three players, then I can't retain on anyone else. Okay. A couple little tricks people do. Robin Leonard is a really good example. So Robin Leonard played for the Chicago Blackhawks, and he made $5 million. He went to Vegas. Chicago could retain up to $2.5 million, but that still wouldn't really work in Vegas's cap situation. So what they did is they did this three-team trade where basically they traded – Chicago traded Leonard to Toronto for just basically some guy. Toronto just gave, like, here, have this person. Like, career minor leaguer, we don't care. Mm -hmm. And Chicago retained $2.5 million. Then, and now I have to explain. Then Toronto made a trade with Vegas to give them Leonard, and they retained – 1.1 1.1 million dollars of the 2.5 so Leonard is now making 1.4 million against the cap for Vegas Vegas gave Toronto like a fifth round pick and then Vegas and Chicago had a trade where Chicago just gave them like a late pick or some maybe that random guy from Toronto too I don't even know some random person and then Vegas gave their actual compensation for Leonard which I forget it was like a second round pick or something like that to Chicago through that trade. So it was a three-team trade just so that it made Leonard work with the cap for Vegas and Toronto had a little bit of cap room because of injuries. So you'll see that where, and that's happened before with the Penguins when they got Derek Brassard. Um, Vegas actually was the third team involved because Derek Brassard went from Ottawa. He was in Vegas for a hot second and then he was back. So like you saw Robin Leonard tweet about like with him and it's photoshopped into the John Tavares picture with the Maple Leafs. She, she's like, they, or, Toronto, it was fun while it lasted. And it lasted <laughs> like 10 minutes. So, that's like how they get around that. Um, the one thing about retained salaries, so, so Leonard's is great because it's a one-year contract. So they just retain it for this year. And then they're like, Toronto has no obligation next year when they're going to be right up against the cap. But if it's longer term contract, then the salary has to be retained at the same level for the duration of the contract. 
and it doesn't matter if it then subsequently gets traded again, it, it has no impact. That retention is there for forever, as long as the contract is there. So as an example, a couple years ago, Toronto, and I'm, why I know this is because it's my favorite team, Pittsburgh, <laughs> traded Phil Kessel to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, Phil Kessel had, a, he had an 18 trade list. So he could specify only eight teams that he could get traded to. Okay. And he, he engineered that. So it would be eight teams that would be hard to trade him to. Smart. So Vegas was kind of over a barrel. Yeah. So they had the only eight teams and everyone knew that. And so Pittsburgh was one of the ones who could make it work. And so they kind of were like, well, in order to make it work, you got to retain salary and this, that, and the other. And so they, Phil Kessel actually was an $8 million cap hit, but they retained $1.2 million, and it was like four years or so left on the contract. Well, in Kessel's first two years in Pittsburgh, they won back-to-back Stanley Cups. So the joke is, Toronto paid Kessel $2.4 million to win two Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cups. <laughs> So it's pretty fun. Oh, poor leaves. And then he, they're still paying him. He's in Arizona. He's kind of fallen off a cliff, so their their trade looks really good now. And, like, the player they got for him is still playing for Toronto, Kasperi Kapanen. And they also got a first-round pick that they flipped to Anaheim to get Frederick Anderson. So it's not like they got – it was a terrible yeah. trade, but it's just kind of funny. Yeah. So – the, the one of the things I thought would be good to talk about is evaluating players' contracts because I hear people talk about players' contracts and they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, for instance, people get after, like, Connor McDavid because he's making $12.5 million and they're like, he's so expensive, he's put this team in a horrible spot, or, like, Austin Matthews makes 11.634, or all of these, like, Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, $10.5 million. And they'll compare him to Sidney Crosby. And it's annoying because at the time, Sidney Crosby, like for a while, the Penguins were hard against, like really, really in a hard spot because he made high enough. And that's what comes back to what I talked about earlier, where a player's contract gets more affordable over time. So if the league bounces back from all this five years from now, people are going to be like, Connor McDavid's contract is so cheap. And so it's just like, you have to, you always have to evaluate contracts in the context in which they were signed. Mm-hmm. Not so much today because you can't blame GMs for that, which they didn't know. I mean, right. people still do that. I mean, that happens in every league. Right. Like someone will get super injured after they sign a contract and then it's like the GM's fault. It's like, <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> now that said, there are some really stupid GMs. <laughs> There are a lot of stupid GMs. Yeah. And hockey's GMs, it's like the same 100 white dudes just recycled. Yeah. Different positions. And so some of them are really dumb and just old school. (laughs) No, they're finally getting some like new train of thought. Like John Chaka is like not that much older than me. I think he's like 30 or 31. He's the Arizona Coyotes uh, general manager. Isn't Toronto's GM? He's like... 33 or so but Jake is the youngest for Arizona and I mean he got hired at like 27 or something like that so he got hired super young but he also has like a very analytical background and stuff but the other side of that there's the famous 2016 free agency and it's famous because a lot of players 
who are like really good were up to be signed, but were also older and played a really tough style of play. So you have to take that into account. If a player is a real bruiser, power forward kind of player, the age curve isn't as friendly. So we have, I, have, I found four contracts. I looked at all the contracts signed. And there are four contracts which currently are widely, widely, widely regarded as just bad contracts. Kyle Ocpozo for the Savers makes $6 million for seven years. He is on their fourth line right now. <laughs> um, Louis Erickson for the Canucks makes $6 million for six years. He is sometimes a healthy scratch. <laughs> Milan Lucic, currently on the Flames, was signed by the Oilers to $6 million for seven years. It was to the point of being so bad that they, the Oilers traded him for James Neal and they had all of these things about like if Lucci scores 15 goals or something insane like that. Like there's conditions around like very, very, very minor things. And I believe right now he has like five goals or something insane like that. Not good. And then Bruins, there's David Backus who was signed $5 million for six years. Um, he was the Blues captain, and they didn't re-sign him, and that's why they, they kind of got a lot of credit for not doing that, because earlier in this season, they, uh, the Bruins put Backus on waivers and sent him to the minors. They didn't make him play, which was very nice, because he's a veteran, and they're like, it's mutually agreed. We're not going to terminate his contract for failure to report, because that happens. If a player gets sent to the minors and they're not happy, sometimes they won't report and then the team can terminate the contract. So the Bruins had to announce, we've mutually agreed he would report if we asked him to, but we're all just agreeing that he can work out at home. We'll still pay him. Everything's good. And then they traded him to um, Anaheim as like a cap dump. And Anaheim gave them a really good player back, but they had to sweeten the pot. They, had, they gave up a first-round pick to do that. And so – when you have these like boat anchor contracts, the Penguins currently have one that bothers me because everyone knew it at the time that this player wasn't good. <laughs> it just bothers me. So I'll talk about that later though. But you have to sweeten the pot to get it off your books. So that's kind of a, a, the thing that's really bad about these is obviously you either have to just take the hit and not be able to spend the money on other good players or you have to pay in future assets to get them off the books. So for those contracts, like for Bacchus, it's, is it 5 million over six years? Yeah. Or? So 30 okay. million total, but the cap hit is $5 okay. million. Gotcha. Um, yeah. the, the only reason I know Bacchus is because when I first started watching hockey, obviously the first thing I did was go look up hockey fights on YouTube. <laughs> and so now like anytime the stars play a team and it's like a team where I don't really know the players on there the only time I usually recognize a name is like oh hey that guy fought Jamie Benn and Jamie Benn fought Bacchus like three seasons in a row like I think he has four seasons four fights against him and I, I was really disappointed that the one season he didn't fight Bacchus was when I started watching it's very disappointing but see, it is good because when he was with the Blues, then they were both captains. Yeah. The two central teams. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so back is this year, he like hit Scott Sabrin of the Ottawa Senators, who's not a very good player at all. But he was kind of, they're both kind of bruisers. Mm -hmm. he, it was just like a normal hockey hit. It wasn't like a fight. Right. 
it just got uh Sabrin wrong and he was like he just like fell forward and he had like his face because he got knocked out cold his face got injured because he had he had no consciousness as he's falling right. it was insane that was and Bathis felt horrible about it too because it like wasn't a fight it was just right just a normal hit yeah so yeah that was that was a tough moment from this year um but so kind of to go along with what I was talking about with evaluating is contracts um because there's there's a few ways it can go there's contracts that sometimes look bad that end up looking okay mm-hmm. um I think the most notable example is Leon Dreisaitl Edmonton was okay Stipulating the fact that their their GM at the time, Peter Shirelli, is widely known as like a horrible GM. He's the one who gave Dallas Tyler Sagan for a bunch of players who aren't in the NHL anymore. Like they they a, a year or two ago, Boston did like some minor trade of some like very okay player but not good. And then after that player was gone and then the player they got back walked into free agency and didn't really do anything, Boston has, like, literally nothing to show for Tyler Sagan right now. It's not even like there's somebody wallowing away in the minors. They have nothing. So, (laughs) stipulating the fact that Peter Shirelli is not a good GM, he wasn't a bit of a hard situation because I believe Dreisaitl and McDavid came up at about the same time. And Dreisaitl very intelligently was like, well, I'm waiting for McDavid. So McDavid signs for $12.5 million because he's Connor McDavid. He's the best in the NHL. Well, you can't go back to Leon Dreisaitl and be like, here's $5 million. Because he's going to be like, well, you gave Connor that much. I know I'm not Connor McDavid, but you got to give me something. So he ended up getting signed for $8.5 million. And for years, because the – Eventual Oilers had one good playoff run a while ago and then for a while have been pretty not good, especially considering they have Connor McDavid. For years, everyone's like, oh, and this is such a bad contract. He's so overpaid, all of this, that, and the other. And then this year, he's just been absolutely electric. Everyone's like, well, 8.5 for that is a steal. And so it's like there's the development curve where a contract can look a bit like an overpay and then end up looking great. So... But in the same time, you still have to acknowledge the fact that the GM paid a player for performance he hadn't given yet. Mm-hmm. So that's like, I mean, it could still have been a bad decision at the time. Right. It just worked out. And then there's the other side of that, contracts that looked good but ended up bad. It can be like concussions, steep regression, that kind of stuff. I, I put in here, goalies are a position ripe for this. Carey Price makes over $10 million and has gotten hurt since his contract and really never had a year even close to being worth $10 million for a goalie. It's to the point where I don't think a team would ever pay a goalie $10 million at this point because Sergei Borovsky got $10 million and promptly has just been absolute trash for Florida. And go, like, like a, a cliche in hockey goalies are voodoo you mm-hmm. never know like what you're gonna get things can be random I mean Dallas has it great <laughs> because you have two like consistent performers yeah so obviously like I think Dobie this year is doing like amazing and Bishop's doing really well too but even if they're not doing amazing they're always going to be at a level that's pretty good 
Yeah. But so many goalies can be primed to be like either Vesna worthy one minute and then like absolute trash the next minute. Yeah. That I've always thought about, um, cause half the time I watch hockey and I'm trying to think of like comparisons to baseball. And I've always thought about how like catcher or catchers. <laughs> I also always try to call goalies catchers. Mm-hmm. Um, goalies always kind of remind me of like starting pitchers as far as like they get the wins or losses and it's not always fair. And then as far as like, you never really know what you're going to get year to year from them because like there's a lot of starting pitchers. They'll have a great season and then they get paid contracts because of that season. But then you never really know if that's going to work out next season, especially with like, like for instance, with the Rangers, Mike Miner had an amazing season last year, but he's like mid thirties. So like, we want him to, like, this year, we kind of expected a lot from him, had the season started on time or at all. But, again, like, mid-30s, he had already been on um, injured list before. So, like, what, you never know if it's going to be a fluke or not. And I feel like goalies are very similar to that. Yeah, and I the one I thought of, too, because I remember having this discussion when it was happening, was Jake Arrieta because mm-hmm. he was like really not anything and then he came to the Cubs and was absolutely electric yeah. for a couple of seasons but everyone was like he hasn't and like this is just so prime for an overpay yeah and I was kind of I mean I loved him he was like so awesome mm-hmm. and he, he has such a good personality too so I loved him as a Cub but I was kind of happy they didn't sign him yeah it just seems like something that they could end up regretting yeah and so, yeah, that's, it is, that's a great comparison. I also understand why you call them catchers because the glove, the goalie yes. actually kind of looks like and, a catcher's name. And kind of like similar stances. Obviously, it's going to be different because ice in a field. But, like, there are so many times where, like, especially the first season I was watching hockey, like, because my, my dad wasn't in hockey as much, but he'd watch it with me. And I'd be like, oh, um, Bishop's doing the – not catching because there's not a verb for goalie but like I always caught myself I want to like, say like oh he's catching he's not catching tonight he's the goalie tonight so yeah. it, it really for like the the months right after baseball's over and hockey starts is when my brain's like trying to get the sports right yeah it, it is really interesting though to think about like some of the similarities yeah. and stuff like that. If you ever want an interesting, fun time, watch, like, old-school goalies, because um, I think it was Martin Brodeur is the one who introduced, he's, like, one of the best goalies of all time, mm-hmm. the butterfly stance, which is where they kind of are basically in the splits most of the time. Uh-huh. Before that, they straight up stood up and never got down. And so, like, when you see Wayne Gretzky's totals, the reason mm-hmm. no one's ever going to touch them is because – I mean, Wayne Gretzky is amazing. Right. No argument there, but goaltending was absolute trash. Yeah. Like if Alex Ovechkin played with that kind of goaltending and the the pads they wore were like half the size of the current pads and stuff like that, he would be just absolutely killing it. I wonder how many goalies that played in the time where it was just standing now see it like, oh yeah, that would have made my my job much easier if I could – because it just makes sense yeah. now. Like when you watch them, you're like, "Yeah, that's how you how you should goaltend." Like, 
why would you stand up? That'd make it harder. And that's, so the thing right now, I think a pretty average goalie is something in the 905 to 910 save percentage. Mm-hmm. 900 is bare minimum. If you're sub 900, you're absolute trash. Yeah. Even 900's not that good. Um, and I think 900 back in the day would have been like absolutely stellar just because of how tough things were. That's insane. So it is like, it's all relative. And right. that's why there is, some good stats around goalkeeping like they're starting to get with like goals saved above average so Mm -hmm. based on location and shooter and the shooting percentage of that to kind of account for the fact of like so for instance Jacob Markstrom of the Vancouver Vancouver Canucks Mm -hmm. he might not he's not going to have the best save percentage because Vancouver doesn't have the best defense but he has like consistently the highest goals saved above average and now that isn't so such a sexy pick for uh, Vesna, but it really does kind of put it in context of yeah. Because obviously Ben Bishop and Antoine Hidobin, I think, would be amazing anywhere they were. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt that their save percentage is a little inflated by the fact that Dallas has one of the best defenses in the NHL. Right. So that's undisputed. They're like top three. Yeah. So it just kind of puts everything in perspective. So. With all of that, that's like a good background. Oh, wait, I guess I should also talk about contracts that look bad and were bad. That's my favorite one. Jack Johnson, the Pittsburgh Penguins. At the time, for this. I have so much to say about this. It's so annoying. He got signed to like $15 million for five years or something insane like that. And it was rumored before free agency. So we knew what it was. And literally everyone is like, he is a horrible defenseman. <laughs> don't do this. And Columbus was scratching him, the team he was on before. It's like, why would you pay someone who was scratched $3 million? No. But he went to Shattuck St. Mary's with Sidney Crosby and all of this. And thanks to a good rookie we have this year, he has been passable. Still not worth the money, but less annoying, mildly less annoying, but it's just so, so frustrating. Oh, that's then, that's the one player I remember from when we went to the game in October. Because I think I asked you, I was like, so Jack Johnson, and immediately we're like, the worst. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> um, but then, luckily, we get spared a little bit because we do not have the worst contract or even the worst defensive contract in the NHL. That belongs to Chicago. Brent Seabrook. <laughs> he got signed to $6.8 million over eight years. And immediately fell off a cliff. And in addition, he has a full no move. So they can't trade him anywhere without him approving it. So he gets to say, so even teams like Ottawa, who maybe would be willing to take it on or something like that, he's going to say, no, I don't want to play for a terrible team. Or like especially um, Detroit is doing really bad. They're tanking but they have a ton of money because they're an original six team. So they would be a team right to take it on, but he's not going to go to Detroit. Like they're horrible. Yeah. And so like some of the only teams he would go to are teams that probably can't fit him under the cap and aren't going to want to because he's not even remotely worth. Right. So he is another contender for Roby dot Island, (laughs) even though he doesn't have a back guys contract, he is a contender and he already is. He's on long-term injured reserve this year. And the Blackhawks, it kind of seems like they really want him to do long-term injured reserve, but he really wants to play. He's a super competitor. He was, and the reason they paid him this money is because he was such an integral part of their Stanley Cup teams. 
but it's basically contracts that look bad and were bad. One of the things that's kind of a staple of that is paying for past performance mm -hmm. because it's like he was 30. Like, yeah, he was great, all of that, but you got to understand where he's headed. Yeah. You got to negotiate with that. So like if it's less term, that kind of stuff. Definitely don't give no moves to everyone. And then also no moves really hurt you too, because then that impacts your um, expansion draft for Vegas and for Seattle now. So one of the issues teams had is they had no moves to like Anaheim had a lot of good defensemen, but they had to protect Evan Bieksa, who wasn't a good defenseman because he's a no move. And so you, he would have to agree to waive it and he didn't agree. And so they ended up giving Vegas Shea Theodore, who's like their number one defenseman now, or like um, Pittsburgh, they had gave Flurry a no move and he agreed to waive it to go to Vegas. But it, it kind of throws you a little over a barrel because you have to get these players to agree to waive it. Is there, does NHL have like, you have to play so many years or whatever to get a, a no yeah. move? So this was a part of the Nylander conversation where it was like Nylander basically wanted something they couldn't give because he wanted assurance that he wouldn't get traded. And the thing is, you have to have played so many years before you can get a no trade. And okay. Toronto gave him a partial no trade where he submits mm -hmm. like a list Got of it. some teams as soon as he was eligible. But that's years into the contract. He's not eligible right away. They can't give it to him. And so some people were saying like, if you're cheap enough – and good enough, they won't trade you because you're way too valuable. And so they have to literally get like a superstar back. Okay. But you basically wanted what they couldn't get them. Because MLB also has that you have you have to play like I want to say you have to be like five years in the majors and or maybe it's five years with one team before you can have a full no trade. It's something like that. You have to play a certain amount of years and then a certain amount of years with one team before you can get a full no trade. Yeah, I think ours is just like it's an age thing or an experience okay. thing. And yeah. then you can get a no trade. And there's also modified no trades where yeah. you can have like a list. That was an interesting story. Um, I forget his name. He was a Swedish guy who got traded for Ryan O'Reilly to Buffalo. And um, he had a no trade. But there's a deadline. You have to submit your no trade on July 1st, your no trade list. He had a, a partial no trade and he didn't submit his list on time. And so he got traded to Buffalo because he could have gotten traded anywhere. Yeah. And he ended up having a little bit, he's playing in Sweden now because he ended up not reporting and basically forfeited millions of dollars Yeah, because he was just not in a good place mentally. And so real quick, and, I looked up the MLB rule because I knew it was going to bother <laughs> me because I knew it had something to do with five years, but it's, it's kind of referred to as 10-5, right? So um, any player who's played 10 years in the majors and spent the past five consecutive years with the same team is automatically rewarded 10-5 rights, which means you can veto any trade. Which, yeah, that's interesting. Patrick Berglund, I had to think of the name. Patrick <laughs> Berglund. And, and uh, Sportsnet in Canada actually did a really good piece on – um, what happened with all of that and like interviewed him and talked to he talked about like the place he was mentally so that's it was an interesting little Sportsnet does some of those long form news stories things that were fascinating um, so I thought I would end with a little bit of a history of 
the cap resources because that's actually kind of interesting mm -hmm. so originally because there actually are some really great stuff out there about the cap for the nhl which is kind of amazing considering how small the league it is compared to the other sports so it started out as cap geek and i don't even i wasn't around for cap geek it was before my big hockey fandom but it was like the resource that started all of this of like coming up with all this cap information and giving all of this stuff um but the owner ended up discontinuing the site and actually unfortunately passed away so that site kind of went away so then in its stead came general fanager you'll notice they all have these fun little names uh general fanager was Kind of a successor to cap geek a lot of the same tools but then when the vegas expansion was announced they started an expand a mock expansion draft here are all the rules here are the eligible players all of this vegas saw it and was actually so so impressed with that expansion tool they hired the guy and as part of hiring him acquired the site which oh, is now wow. not public anymore vegas wow. is the only one who's access to general manager so that went away but while Gen General Fanager was up, there was already another site kind of beginning, which is our current, and we're all waiting for some team to pay for it and for it to go away. It's called Cap Friendly. It is amazing. Everyone should go to Cap Friendly. It's where I got some of my information for this, and I do stuff on it all the time. You can look at your team's cap situation, and not even just now, you can see how much they have committed in subsequent years. You can... Um, my favorite thing armchair gm where you can take either your team and like try to play around with it this year or in future years and like make trades sign free agents or restricted free agents or anything like that to like and it will show you the cap so you can stay under the cap or you can make like sample teams so a lot of teams will be like here's my best cap compliant team or stuff like that or like they'll create a team canada just to show you what the olympics would be like or something like oh, that cool so it's a lot of fun and they did just come out with a trade tool where you can create a trade between two teams and it will tell you if it meets all of the requirements of the trade so if the team is still cap compliant if both teams are still cap compliant after the trade if it meets all of the requirements around how you have to trade because there are different rules so there's just so much there and they have started their they did one for vegas but they've started their Seattle expansion draft tool. It's not fully built out because some of the things are like a certain amount of games played in the season and all of that. And so obviously that you need next season to happen to know some of that. But as next season wears on, it will get more and more data so you can see who's eligible mm -hmm. and how you how each team meets the requirements. So it's and then in addition, where I got a lot of my information for this is because they have FAQs on like everything about the cap. It is so good. It's the best uh, endorsement I can make for this. It is so good that so many teams use it. The Athletic did an article on it, and a league official and multiple team officials have said that this is like the most widely used tool. Oh wow! In the NHL, like among teams, because um, teams might know their own cap situation forwards and backwards, but they don't know every team's. Right. situation so when they're negotiating these trades it's great because they can look and see okay what do i need to give to make it balance out and all of that kind of stuff and so um the carolina hurricanes had a like behind the scenes on draft day or something like that and they ended up having to take the pic they ended up taking the picture down because everyone was like oh you're on cat friendly 
<laughs> and they were embarrassed by that. But Seattle did a behind the scenes video of how they were starting and it, their, uh-huh. their people were all on cap friendly and they've left it up because it's like, yeah, everyone's on cap friendly. Yeah. So it's very great. And I think it's so cool too. They're not trying to like, like both of the guys, at least when the athletic article was working, still had full-time jobs and were wow. basically making this a second full-time job, but they were just making enough to cover expenses because they just do advertising revenue. There's no like mm-hmm. premium content or anything like that. So if you guys have ad blockers, please don't use it for cap friendly because I think like they're providing this service that clearly is invaluable. Part of me just wishes like teams would throw in a little bit of money like collectively yeah. and be like, we all want this tool. It's great for our fans. It gets them involved in the business side of the game. Yeah. We'll all throw in like 10 grand or something. Cause it's like, that's nothing. Yeah. So that's why we also all think that eventually it's going to get sold. Cause if you offer them a few million dollars, well, that's more than they've ever made before. Yeah. So we're waiting for the day, but capfriendly.com if you want more information about this. If you ever have a question, it's probably on there and you can find out about your team's cap situation. So I guess with that, is there anything that I didn't clear up? That was so good. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I just took like a crash course on all the contracts in NHL and how all of that works. Yeah, so now it's like, and I'm getting, and this is kind of what I wanted. It's like a high level overview. Obviously, there's a lot of details even in the high level. But then when something comes up, you can text me and be like, oh, yeah. this is this, this, and this. Or even I go to Cap Friendly. This. Yay. <laughs> so now all my nerdiness kind of came. <laughs> this is like, I know all of this. Most of this I just typed from memory. <laughs> and so I'm yeah. like, I want to. Because I was going to say, I'm looking like I was reading along the notes as you were saying it, but then there were some times where you weren't even saying anything on the notes. I'm like, wow, she just has some contracts memorized. (laughs) It is like, like I've learned. Well, and also I've been playing so much. I've been telling Morgan about this. This is my, my nerdy thing from this. So what I'll do is I'll use like a random generator and I'll like create like pairs of teams and then I'll create a cap compliant team with both teams and I even make it a little harder than that where it's like each team has like half the cap and so then I have to make a full roster with each (laughs) team getting half the cap and stuff like that so I have so much knowledge now (laughs) of contracts that players are on for all of the random different teams I can give you like a good five to ten players from literally every single team in the NHL so I've, I've spent I've spent quarantine getting really knowledgeable about team contracts (laughs) so I'm glad we got to do this I picked this topic because I'm like I know way too much about this so I think maybe next week it would be fun um to do something like I kind of like this do something nerdy and then something fun and something nerdy so we'll have to come up with something fun or something if you guys have any ideas we Morgan I know put a thing on our Instagram of uh send us ideas but you can always send us stuff um our instagram what our instagram handle is um a show of their own podcast and we're also on twitter and then of course morgan price on twitter japanese underscore ginger on twitter and then subscribe rate review whatever on the platform that you are listening to this we're on spotify google and itunes so whatever works best for you and anything else morgan Rant and rave. Oh, duh. <laughs> I'm forgetting. And I, I have to, you're going to have to go first. I, okay. I've been so in a nerd, nerd moment. I got to 
come up with my rant. Right? Okay, well, my rant is very relative to this because um, baseball is starting to do like negotiations, like owners with players about like starting the season and bringing that back. And one of the biggest issues, and I, I retweeted a video yesterday that explains like this way better than I am. Basically, MLB is trying to use this time as a way to start a cap, do their own salary cap. And because they want to do like, oh, 50-50. So when you were explaining that, I was like, oh, I have my rant. Because <laughs> if they're going to like manipulate this time to, in, to incorporate a salary cap, like, first of all, that's just ridiculous. But then like the, uh, the players agreement expires next season, December 1st, 2021. So even like last season, there was already talks of there's, it, there's going to be a lockout in 2021. Like that's obvious. And now that they're doing, they're trying to do this, like, oh, we'll do 50-50 revenue and da 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 It's like, well, you're, you're really asking for a lockout now. Um, and I saw a lot of players, their concern was, first of all, 50-50, that's not worth it for us taking that risk because, yeah, they could play games without fans, but you still have 25 guys, and that's just players, not coaches and, you know, the clubhouse guys, all in a very close space. You can't exactly social distance playing baseball. And, yeah, they can all be tested and checked, but you still have asymptomatic people who can give it to a player and then that player goes home to see their family. And then like, it's, it doesn't, it's not worth the risk for them, which I totally get. And I know a lot of people seem to be mad at players. Like, well, why wouldn't you do this? You're still making millions. It's like, but you don't know who has it, who can give it like, yeah, they may not have symptoms, but it's not worth the risk for themselves, but also their family. Like it's, it's just not worth it. And it's also annoying to see, the owners kind of try to manipulate everything to make it work for them, not necessarily the players and the teams and the fans. Now you know what you have to look forward to if you get a, a cap. Uh, oh, I know. Cap. When you were talking about all this, I'm like, well, I guess if MLB tries to do a salary cap, I guess I'll understand how most of it works now. <laughs> um, so I guess for my rant, um, kind of continuing off of last week's rant, I'm having some real problems with how people are talking about some of this Brendan Leipzig stuff because mm -hmm. they're framing it as like, well, have you ever talked shit privately and like it was exposed or whatever? Like, like just imagine if the shit you talk privately got exposed. Okay. Well, yeah, but like, I never said, I never called anyone fat privately. Like, come on, let alone a player's wife. And I actually thought one of the best rebuttals to this is Spit and Chicklets did talked about it because of course they had to and these guys aren't super politically correct and sometimes don't have the most eloquent conversations around what's going on this kind of stuff in the NHL they're more like fun but one of the former players is like I have never like I've been in locker rooms so when the people say locker room talk like I understand some of the stuff that horrifies people that is locker room talk this isn't it he called a player's wife who had literally just given birth and was holding their baby to like show their dad, his dad, like baby's dad, her husband at the game. He called her like fat. Like I would like, I would never hear that. And if you heard of that, like all of the players would be like, trade this guy now, send him to yeah. the minors. We want nothing to do with this guy, especially if he's like this guy who wasn't very good at all. It's like this kind of stuff just doesn't like, it's not, and so on the one hand, I have a problem with people having those conversations. I do also want to agree that sometimes people take it too far to say like, 
hockey culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely agree that there's a subset of hockey and there's a subset of all populations that talk like this, that have men that talk like this. And it makes women feel unwelcome. And that's where it's like hockey is for everyone, but we have all these incidents that make people feel unwelcome. Right. But that's not to say, like, I think the vast majority of players do not say that. Yeah. And clearly, like, the reason the cap, part of the reason the cap terminated his contract is no one would want to play with this guy. Yeah. And so I think it's like, a, a, there's a nice middle ground of like, okay, yes, he's a little bit of an outlier in that not everyone is saying that. But more than a few people say stuff like this, and it does make people feel unwelcome. It does make women feel like the only thing we're good for is our looks and all of that. And so it's kind of acknowledging the middle ground. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm going to say what I, I mean to say very, very well, but I think there's also a difference in like, yeah, sometimes you can text your friends and be like, mm, I don't think that outfit worked on her or whatever, but it's never like trying to be vindictive and it's I I can't imagine ever being on a team and then behind a teammate who y'all are supposed to be like so close and like a fraternity type thing you would go behind their back and be like yeah his wife's she's not hot she's fat and like like that seems more personal personally like vindictive and like trying to hurt I don't know if I'm explaining what I mean I think and I think Adam actually said that on the Steve Dangle podcast where he's like you read this and it reads like someone who isn't okay it reads like someone who's so insecure yeah and it's like obviously that doesn't take away the hurt that he caused people it doesn't take away that there are very serious consequences he should have to face Mm -hmm. know better anyone should know better but it is I think a part of the story where it's like how messed up do you have to be to say stuff like that? Yeah, and to, because from what I've read from it, wasn't it part of, like, a group chat with other mm-hmm. teammates? So, like, to say that and be, like, just out outright with it, like, okay with it, because he yeah. clearly didn't see anything wrong with saying it. Like, I feel like if I were to say something like that, like, just out of being jealous or something, I would immediately feel bad about it. Like in the moment, like I think we all had our jealousy moments or like we're feeling insecure. So you maybe like insult someone else. But I think the normal thing after that is to be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I felt bad. Like that was a, a bad moment of my self. And I think people are forgetting, like it's definitely part of the story that a private DM got leaked, but that's not the biggest offense. However, yeah. like comparatively last year, several Ottawa senators was in, were in an Uber and the cab, the Uber driver apparently wasn't happy with the tip he got. He got a tip. He just wasn't happy with the amount or something. Uh-huh. He thought he should have got a lot because they're NHL players. And so he released a video from the Uber where the guys didn't know, because obviously Uber films everything and yeah. you're not supposed to release that stuff publicly, where they were like shit talking their assistant coach and saying like, our penalty kill is so obnoxious and so awful and we're just like, it's an automatic goal now. Well, okay, I think a lot of people took the player side. That was a private conversation that should never have been leaked. The team took right. their side. And who doesn't shit talk their coach? Right. Like, I don't like right. the way they did stuff. They didn't insult his wife. They didn't do any of that. It was just like, and even they apologized. They were like, yeah, yeah like that wasn't okay, blah, blah, blah. But I think, I, I didn't actually see anything wrong with that because I think 
that everyone has to have the space to vent their frustrations about right. their team, about their boss, and all of that. And it shouldn't get back to them. It should just be a, a safe space to vent. Right. And that shouldn't have been released. So that's the difference. There's a, like a very thing of like, there are things that you would say in private that shouldn't get public, but doesn't mean you should say them in private. Right. What he did was not any of that. Yeah. Like that, you shouldn't say that anywhere. Yeah, I so, agree. That was my rant. Do you want um, my rave? Was I had like three different ones that I wanted to do last week, but I saved them. So one of them that I saved for this week was um, so aside from sports and fashion and royals, I really enjoy baking. And so the other day, especially in quarantine, I'm like, well, I might as well bake because like, what else is there to do? And baking gets my mind off anxiety because I'm like focused on something else. So I came across, because I have celiac disease, so I can't have gluten. So I came across a gluten-free baking book at Target. And I was just like, you know what? I'll just get it because you can use like normal recipes, but just change it to gluten-free flour. But sometimes it doesn't always work out. So I was like, I'm going to get a true gluten-free baking book and just try that. And just like it coming in the mail and flipping through it made me so excited because I love the Great British Bake Off and it kind of felt like that vibe, like flipping through. I was like, yes, I have my own personal like British Bake Off baking book and like I'm so excited to bake in it. Like I even, I went on like William Sonoma and got like a on sale like loaf pan and it feels like heavy and professional like I just can't wait to start baking stuff out of it because I just feel like oh, I finally have something where I don't have to like overthink it I haven't eaten anything today so now I'm gonna have to like, eat a bunch of unhealthy <laughs> stuff as soon as we're done. <laughs> um, so I got my rave and I've wanted to talk about this for a while I am so 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 in love with what some players are doing where for first responders or essential workers or something, they're providing local food for yeah. them. And they're supporting local restaurants at the same time that they're giving food to these people. I think that's so cool. And the one I really wanted to highlight is Pierre Lucroix from Columbus. So he provided food to grocery workers was the one he singled out, which I thought mm -hmm. was really cool. But then his grandparents, he's from Quebec, they live in a, like, assisted living facility together, and so he worked with the local grocery store there, and got, like, he tried to work with them to get, like, at least a couple weeks worth of groceries that could last a while, that wouldn't go bad, and gave them to every resident, because he's like, yes, they can go grocery shopping, but they're an at-risk population, so if I can yeah. save them even one trip, that's lowering their risk, and so they, they, I saw a whole article about how then he got to see his parents, or his grandparents on, like, the balcony, and, like, talk to them about it, and his grandma was like, oh, I was so excited because I've just been with my husband the whole time and I just fairly hate him at this point. <laughs> and he was so cute. And so, and he, this guy's like, he's still on his entry-level contract. So he's like 21 yeah. or 22. It's so sweet. So here, like, wow, you get my raise this week. Oh, I love that so much. So now is there anything else <laughs> or do we want? I think that's it. And then like throughout the week, we'll decide next week. So more to come on what next week is, but Maureen and I have a great week, everyone, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys.